All right, welcome back. Thank you guys. You're doing exactly what I asked you to do. Glad you guys are getting to know each other and saying hello to one another this morning. Uh, again, if this is your first time at True North, what you've seen so far is a pretty typical Sunday for us. We used to not do that five-minute break, and then something like 100 people would get up and just leave in the middle of the service. And if you don't know what's going on, that's a pretty weird feeling, right? Most churches that you go to, half the people don't leave in the middle. So we thought we would just start taking an intermission together and let that be something that we kind of own. So thanks for doing that with us. Hopefully you had a chance to meet somebody that you haven't met before or catch up a little bit if you haven't seen each other in a week. Um, I know, again, we have a bunch of new families with us today, and so just so you guys are aware, we love young kids, especially little babies. There's going to be babies crying and screaming and doing stuff that babies do, and that is great. We are glad that those children are here. Uh, for the first, I don't know, 1900 years of the church, there were no cry rooms. So this was just what church was, and it was good. We have a cry room. You're welcome to use it if you need to feed this morning, or your baby needs a change, or you just need a break. Uh, the audio of everything goes into that room live on like a one-second delay. So that's available to you, but I want you to know there's no pressure. We're glad you're here. We hope that you and your family can just relax and participate in learning from God's Word, which is what we're going to do now. So, uh, this morning, we're in the third week of what is a four-part series, so we will land the plane for good next week on simplicity. Simplicity as a spiritual discipline. Now, already, I may have said some things where you're going, what? A what is what? What are we doing? So here's the idea. At True North, uh, we're about a year into this process. We probably have another two to two and a half years to go. We are alternating between expositional, verse-by-verse preaching through the book of Mark, which we'll be back on starting October 1st and working through some spiritual disciplines. The reason for that is because our leadership at True North have realized that lots of Christians who are maybe 40 and younger have not been discipled very well. They've been told what to do but not how to do it, and even what they've been told to do oftentimes is less helpful than maybe it could be. So our attempt is to stay anchored in the scriptures, to do our very best to always hear from Jesus as much as possible on how to live the Christian life, on what's true for you and I, but to also try to work out a little bit of how do we actually do this thing? What does a Christian life look like? Many of us as believers know what we should not do. That's kind of been beaten into our skulls by well-meaning Sunday school teachers and parents and grandparents, but often we've not seen great examples of how to fill that life to the brim with Christ-like actions. So I'll make this disclaimer a couple more times today. I've done it every week. I'm gonna do it again now. What we are dealing with today is an opportunity to live simply, And that opportunity is available to people who have given their life to Jesus and received in exchange his life, both life on earth and eternal life with him and God the Father and the Spirit in eternity forever. So we're not talking about things you have to do if you want to be a Christian. We're not talking about steps you have to take if you hope to appease God or make him happy. What we're talking about is once the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ has been applied to your life, what do you do then? What's next? And I think that the answer to that question is much deeper and more rich and more robust than many of us have seen. So our objective today is to continue our conversation about simplicity. Simplicity not just as an idea, simplicity not just as a set of behaviors that we should all be doing, but as a discipline in our lives, as something that we willingly participate in that probably is going to feel a bit like an uphill battle, but that we believe if we can be focused, if we can be measured, if we can be careful— that there is going to be a product, a fruit, to use the language of the Bible, that will be borne out in our lives, that will be positive, and that will help us, and that we'll be thankful that we participated in. So the very first thing I want to do today is I want to define for you simplicity. When we say simplicity, what do we mean? We mean a mindset. So we're talking about an internal concept. 
We're not just talking about living a certain way. And again, I'll warn you, you don't want to jump all the way to practical application here or you're tempted into legalism, I think. It'd be very easy with a discipline like simplicity to just sell a bunch of your stuff and make sure that your social media presence looks like your life is very simple and then maybe all the Christians in your life would get off your back and you would impress everybody and score a bunch of social points. That's not what we want to do. We want to cultivate an interior reality. Um, My definition is a joyful unconcern, a lack of concern for what? For possessions, so what you have, for prestige, how you look to other people, and personal advancement, your sense of have I done enough, have I achieved enough, have I gone far enough. I believe that part of the work that the gospel wants to do in your life is to set you free from those ambitions that drive you into anxiety and restlessness and a lack of contentment. Contentment is the fruit of simplicity. If you can reach a point where you have that joyful unconcern, then you may eventually cultivate an abundance of contentment in your life. And contentment is worth defining. I would call it an inner sense of God's all-sufficiency. So that's a lot of technical stuff. What are we really talking about here? That we want to live in a way where we believe, not just hope, not just think, not just fake it, where we really believe that God is enough. That in Christ, we lack nothing that we need, and therefore, everything that we have that we don't need, we can be open-handed about. We can give things away. We can share what we have. We can be less possessive, less anxious, less worried. A week ago, we spent our time applying these principles to our use of time. So we talked about things like the main point of our lives, our priorities. We talked about things like distractions, what draws us away from the focus of our life. And then we landed the plane last week by talking about margin, by having enough room to be interrupted and maintain Christ-likeness as we do that. Our objective today is to bring these principles to bear on money, on our possessions, on what the Bible refers to as wealth. Wealth can be understood as anything that you don't need but you do have access to. So anything that's kind of a toy for you or that's part of a hobby that you participate in or an extra bedroom at your house that nobody really needs but it's there as a convenience, these are things that are representative of wealth. Many, many people on the face of the planet live with no wealth. They only have what they need or they have less than what they need. Most of us in this room have some form of wealth. Now, we might not be in the top 10% of earners at our company or at the rank that we're at on base or among our family members. There may be some other pressure that's, that's trying to convince you that you don't have enough money and you should be making more. But objectively, on a global scale, anybody who's middle class or above in America has uh, more money than most human beings have had on the face of the planet in all of human history. About 50 years ago, a guy named Arthur Gish wrote a book that's called Beyond the Rat Race. He wrote it in 1973. And there's a quote from that book that you may have heard before. I've heard this often quoted and sourced to the wrong person. So I just want to read this to you. When Arthur Gish looked around in 1973, this is what he saw prevalently among the attitudes of people in the West, the people around him in America. He said, we buy things that we don't want to impress people who we do not like. And that's the rat race in Arthur's eyes. Now, that was 50 years ago. My question for you is, have things gotten better in 50 years? I don't think so. I think in general, many of us are tempted into um, relying on stuff. We have more wealth uh, as a generation than people 50 years ago could even comprehend. The access that we have to basically go anywhere and do anything, and sure, it costs money, but we could save in the next 6 to 18 months and probably do just about anything that we wanted to do. That's wealth. That's an immense opportunity that we have to steward what God has given to us. 
Now, I told you a minute ago that I'm going to talk about money today. It's not lost on me uh, that I would preach a sermon on money on a Sunday when we have a ton of guests, way more than we normally do. Uh, So I'll just comfort you with this fact. Uh, I have preached 196 times since my wife and I moved here in 2019. Of those 196 times, exactly zero of those times have I preached on money before today. So congratulations, I guess, and welcome. And if this makes your skin crawl, uh, you probably have another 196 to go before you have to sit through this again. Um, The reason I want to preach this is not because I have an agenda for you or for our local church. The reason I want to preach this is I really do think, and I'm going to try as best I can to make this clear today, that most of us have an overly complicated, anxiety-ridden, primarily emotional relationship with what we own, whether it's our bank account or our stuff our cars, our house, we mostly interact with those things the way we would a complicated dating relationship. We have a lot of anxiety, we don't want, we're not sure what to do, or we're overly controlling. And I wanna just try to peel some of that back and apply simplicity to the way that we have what we have and hopefully set you free a little bit. I think that's what Jesus wants to do for you today as well. So we're gonna go first to the Old Testament. This is the pattern that we've used as we've worked through these spiritual practices. Let's hear from God some basic teaching on how he thinks people should live. He's the expert, so we ought to wanna know what he thinks. Then we're gonna jump to the New Testament today, and we're gonna hear from Jesus. And Jesus is gonna reinterpret and reteach the same points that God the Father makes in the Old Testament. Then we're gonna get practical, then we're gonna be done. So that's what we're gonna do. Let's begin in Deuteronomy chapter eight. You're welcome to go there in your own Bible if you'd like to. Uh, We're going to be in Deuteronomy 8. We're also going to go to Matthew 6. So you can kind of pick if you want to go to either of those places. You can put your finger in Matthew 6 and just hold that spot and then be with me, excuse me, here in Deuteronomy 8. But here's what's going on in Deuteronomy. Leviticus and Deuteronomy are the two books of the Bible that probably force you off your annual Bible reading plan on a yearly basis, right? You're, You're doing good. Genesis is cool. There's, you're like, is that a, are they talking about dinosaurs? It's interesting. What's going on? How long did this take? These people are wild. You get to Exodus. It's this massive sweeping drama. It's sort of the archetype for any hero story where a pers- people are delivered, and it's against all odds, and you feel great for the Israelites. And then you get to the end of Exodus, and you start to go, okay, I'm feeling like we're moving out of engaging story territory into, like, is this just somebody's, like, checkbook that I'm reading? I don't know what this is. Is it like a, it's a, it it seems like it's a lot of names and it's dates and it's numbers and I don't know what it means. Here's the deal. Beginning at the end of Exodus and working through the next two and a half books of the Bible, God is laying out a blueprint. Now blueprints are not exciting. Even if you're an engineer, they're not that exciting. Blueprints are a way that you can know what to do so that if you take the steps the blueprint says to take, you'll wind up with whatever you want. Your, Your electricity will work when you flip the switch on. You'll have water in your bathroom because you followed the blueprint. God is laying out step for step how people ought to live. In a way, God is undoing or at least casting a vision for how life could have been if Adam and Eve had never sinned. He's showing his people, this is the way that you live. This is the way that you interact. Now, there are parts of these laws that God gives that are spoken into a culture that God doesn't confront directly. So just know that there are certain pieces of this and it's complicated to know which is which and I'd be happy to help you sometime if you want to learn sort of how to navigate the Old Testament differently. But where we're going to pick it up in Deuteronomy 8, Moses is speaking. Moses is the man who God used to lead his people out of Egypt where they were slaves and now Moses is laying the groundwork for a brand new nation. This is the closest we get in the Bible of a glimpse of God's economic plan for a nation. Picking it up in verse 11, Moses says this. Be sure that you do not forget Yahweh, God the Father, your God, by not keeping his commandments, by not keeping his ordinances, by not keeping his statutes that I'm giving you today. 
This happens again and again. This is one long teaching that Moses does, several chapters, and he repeats himself regularly and says, make sure that you remember to keep God's law. Remember to keep God's law. Now, the implication would be you're not going to do that, right? Why do you have to remind somebody of something if there's not a chance they're going to forget it? So we're already beginning to see that even though God has a perfect plan, people are probably not going to follow it and it's not going to work that well. But if they did, Moses says in verse 12, when you eat your fill, because you will, When you build and occupy good houses, when your cattle and your flocks increase, you can think of that as your paycheck and your savings account. When you have plenty of silver and gold, when you have abundance of everything, then what happens? Be sure that you do not feel self-important. Be sure that you do not forget Yahweh, your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt, the place of slavery, who brought you through the great and fearful wilderness of venomous serpents and scorpions, an arid place with no water, God made water flow from a flint rock. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which was bread that fell from heaven, which your ancestors had never before known, so that he might, by humbling you, test you and eventually bring good to you. So be careful, verse 17. Be careful not to say, my own ability and my own skill have gotten me this wealth. You must remember Yahweh, your God, for he is the one who gives ability to get wealth. If you do this, he will confirm his covenant that he made by oath to your ancestors, even as he has done to this day. But if you forget Yahweh your God at all, if you follow other gods worshiping and prostrating yourselves before them, then I testify to you today. Moses is saying, I'm not just speaking now. Now I stand in the court of God Almighty as a witness. I've sworn myself in and I'm promising you, you will be annihilated if you put other gods before your God. Now I want to start with that last verse and just clarify what we're talking about here. It is not my understanding of this verse that Moses is insinuating that a group of people who have been saved by God will find themselves unsaved because of their actions. That goes against God's character. It goes against the story of the whole Bible. What I believe Moses is trying to say to these people is you're going to destroy yourselves and the people groups and their gods that you're going to be tempted to bow down to are going to lead you into destruction. I don't think their eternity is on the line here, but I think he's speaking very practically that, sure, if you love God and want to honor him, then there's good reasons to follow him and do what he says. But even if you don't care about God, the way that these other gods, if you will, money, self-esteem, prestige, those things are going to lead you into self-destruction. So just hear me. Moses is saying, just understand that even if you decided there is no God, you can still live with wisdom or not. And if you live without wisdom, it's not going to go well for you. This isn't just like a, God would really prefer that I do a few things different with my finances, and maybe if I do, then things will go a little bit better. Moses is saying there is a way to live in which you have wealth. You heard him say that, right? When you have everything you need, when you have a nice house, when your bank account is full, God's not saying you have to be poor to be a Christian. He's simply saying when those things happen, you will be tempted to tell yourself and other people, I got me here. I did it. My work ethic, my commitment my personality, my sacrifice, I built this, and therefore, here's where it gets dangerous, I will decide what it's used for. That's frankly where many of us are with our finances. And I'm not picking on you, I'm just telling you I'm one of us, and I understand how this goes. In the West, we are often taught that what we wear, what we drive, where we live, what we live in, and how much we have in our bank account is the best metric for success. God is saying, sure, if you follow me, I'm going to bless you and you're going to have opportunities. The key is not whether you have or have not. The key is what will you do when you have with what you have? How will you respond to that? And in that way, even though this is an ancient book written to a group of people that are totally removed from our culture, I think God is talking right to the heart of our issue. Because most of us do have. And we have opportunities. And we are held responsible by God for what we do with those. And frankly, many of us tend to tell ourselves, 
I got myself here, I did this, and therefore it's totally okay, it's justified even, for me to decide what to do with what I have. If you look back at verse 11, it's the first of maybe three commands that Moses gives in this passage. He says, be sure that you do not forget Yahweh. To me, this is an echo of the overarching theme of simplicity that we've been talking about for three weeks. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. Don't forget God. It's the same thing, same idea. Jesus is reinterpreting what God the Father said in the Old Testament. Now, why would we forget God? Because when you make a lot of money, you can insulate yourself from lots of the things that cause people to want to follow God. You can begin to convince yourself that you don't need anybody, including God's help, because everything's going to be fine because you have enough money in the bank. This was true 4,000 years ago. It's true today. It'll be true as long as there are people on the face of this planet. So you're not bad because you're dealing with that temptation, but you're not going to handle it well if you're not learning from God the way that we're to interact with our finances. Verse 14, he says, be sure that you do not feel self-important. That's a little bit harder because maybe nobody would know. Maybe you've learned how to fake it at church or at home so your spouse thinks you're humble, but you know inside your heart if you're taking credit for what you've been able to build for yourself, your wealth, your fortune, your opportunities. If you begin to feel self-sufficient, if you begin to believe that you only have yourself to thank for what you, what's going right in your life, then you will begin to forget God. Verse 17, Moses says, don't tell yourself that it was your ability that got you, what you whatever it is you have. Don't tell yourself that it was your skill that created your wealth, that built the opportunities that you have benefited from. Why? Why don't believe that? Well, because then you'll begin to think that you can improve your own life. And you'll begin to think that you're so important that really other people need to listen to your advice. They need to build their finances the way that you built yours. You'll begin to prop yourself up as more and more and more of a God in your own life and other people's lives. Instead of being able to humbly point to God and his blessings and his mercy as the reason behind the opportunities and the wealth that you have. In verse 19, Moses answers the implied question that we may have from this passage, which is, well, what if I don't do these things? How bad could it really be? I mean, we're talking about an attitude, right? Can't I take the right actions with the wrong attitude and everything will still be fine? Moses says, if you forget Yahweh and you begin to follow other gods, which again, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says you can only serve one master or the other. So if money has become your God, that means that God is not your God anymore. So if this happens for you, what should you expect? you should expect your life to unravel. You may have great experiences, you may have a lot of followers, you may have people who look up to you and want your input or your insight into how to become successful like you were, but inside of yourself, you will get worse and worse and worse because you won't be honoring God, your character won't be shaped by him, you won't be walking in obedience, and that's the thrust of the Christian life. It's not, can we get it right on the outside, it's how can God change who we are, our character, our spirit, our mind. The point would be this, okay, that according to what God is saying through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that everything you have actually belongs to God. And I put have in quotation marks, because even the stuff you have, you don't really have. You can't protect it, you can't hoard it, you can't gain enough of it to make yourself happy. It's God's. So a word that you may have heard churches or preachers use in the past to talk about money is stewardship. A steward is a person who sits on a smaller throne next to the king's throne in a kingdom and helps make administrative decisions for the kingdom itself. They never become the king. They don't rule. It's not their laws. They are an extension of the king or the queen, and it's their job to just kind of help keep things running in the general direction that the king or queen have said that they should go. If you apply that to your life, then it makes a lot of sense what God is saying here. It is your responsibility to make decisions about the money that you have access to. It is not your responsibility to set the overarching policies for what you should and shouldn't do with your finances. 
It is your responsibility to think through your future and your children's future and how best to give and care for the, those people in your life who are needy or poor. It's not your decision to decide, ah, oh, well, there will always be poor people. That's what Jesus said, so we're just going to hang on to our finances and go on one extra vacation a year. Sometimes we put ourselves on that larger throne, and we begin to think that just because nothing's going wrong in our lives, that that's a great way to tell whether or not God's happy with us, and therefore, we must be doing everything the way God said because we haven't had any tragedies in the last six months, so we're just going to keep spending and saving the way that we think that we should. As stewards, we always default to the king, even if we haven't heard from the king in a while, even if we feel like we haven't gotten new instructions or new directions, or he hasn't come down hard on us because we got it wrong. We want to measure our lives against the teaching that God has given us, and remember, this isn't about salvation, not because we're afraid we'll go to hell if we get it wrong, but because as people who've been saved by God's grace and mercy, we have an opportunity, an open door into a different kind of life that looks like the life that Jesus lived. This morning, uh, when our kids dismissed down to the summit room, they did something new, something that we've been planning for a few months. They participated in a question and answer that comes from a book called the New City Catechism. The first question in that book is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer, the children's version of the answer, is that we are not our own, but we belong to God. Now, if you were to read any catechism, and you may not even know what that word means, think of it as just kind of a, a collection of basic ideas about Christianity. If you read any of the famous ones, the Westminster, the Heidelberg, Luther's Shorter Catechism, which has emergency baptism tips in the back, if you guys ever wanted to read something kind of funny from a long time ago, Martin Luther wrote out, how do you baptize somebody while they're dying in the street? Because he believed you had to be baptized to go to heaven, which is really funny. So anyway, that's funny to me. You guys didn't laugh, so you must not think it is. Uh, you can be thankful that you're not married to me. My wife gets to hear about stuff like this all the time. Imagine me running into the room and going, turn off the football game. Guess what Martin Luther said in 1500? And anyway, so the point is this, okay? We're very comfortable teaching our children that their only hope in life and death is that they don't belong to themselves, but that they belong to God. Do we live like that is my question. Is that cool and nice to teach them, but we have no intention of following through with that? Because I think the ideas are connected here. If our only hope in life and death is that we belong to God, that means we, as persons, belong to him. If we belong to him on an individual level, why would we think that our money doesn't belong to him? Why would we think that our house doesn't belong to him or our cars don't belong to him? Our savings accounts, our vacation plans, what we wear, what we eat. Even Jesus said the same thing back in Matthew 6, right? Why do you worry? What are you anxious about? You belong to God like the birds and the flowers, and he cares for them. He will care for you as well. If everything we have belongs to God, then that means that we can believe what we're teaching our kids, that even we belong to God. And that is an important principle to grapple with. Past this point in this teaching, if you can't agree with that concept, you're going to gain very little ground. You will never gain control over your finances. You will never reach the point where you can manage what God's given you in a way that blesses your family and the kingdom and doesn't just build something new for you to enjoy if you can't understand that you belong to God. If you don't believe that's true, everything God asks you to do with your money is going to be offensive. It's going to feel really bad, like God is a bully, because you're going to think he's trying to take something from you that's yours, that you earned, that you worked hard for, that you sacrificed in order to gain. But that's not true. What did God tell the Israelites? A brand new people group. He said to them, for the rest of your lives, anything that you gain, remember, I gave you the ability. The wealth that you have, I gave you the skills. So thank me doesn't mean you can't use those things, you can't interact with them, but what's going on in your heart, church, is more important than the actual actions that you take with your money. And as is always the case in Christianity, when your heart is right, you will do the right thing. 
but trying to work backwards into that doesn't work. We can't just force ourselves to try to take the right steps with our money and hope that it fixes our heart. What will actually happen is we'll do the right things with our money for a little while, and then we'll just resent God and be bitter because our heart never changed and we didn't get in sync with his perspective. Now, maybe all of this seems a little too Old Testament for you, so let's go to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and see what he has to say about our wealth or our treasure. Jesus is speaking in Matthew 6. He'd been talking for almost an hour at this point to a group of people who were gathered on a hillside next, excuse me, to a, a small inland lake that's called the Sea of Galilee where he started his ministry. And he says this to the people that want to follow him. He says, Do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and where devouring insect destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, accumulate treasures for yourselves in heaven where moth and devouring insect do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now notice what Jesus is not doing. Jesus is not saying whether or not our heart should follow our treasure, right? That's how we would like to have this conversation, is we'd like to moralize it and say, well, God, I'm better and stronger than other people, and so I can have treasures on earth and still have my heart in eternity. Jesus is like, no, you can't and you never will, and nobody's ever done it, and so you need to ask less questions about how do I keep a nice, healthy nest egg that reinforces all of my security and keeps me from ever having to have any questions about my future? How can I do all of that and stay super comfortable insulated but still put my heart in eternity? Jesus says if your treasure is on earth, your heart is on earth. You're focused on earthly things. Again, it's, this is all the same concept being drawn out from what he says about 18 verses later in Matthew 6 where he says, seek first the kingdom of God. If we're trying to seek first the kingdom of God, the application of that when it comes to our money is that we would actually invest in advancing the kingdom of God. We wouldn't invest in stuff that only helps us and only benefits us. The Apostle Paul interpreted Jesus' teachings on wealth in his first letter to Timothy, one of his disciples, one of his apprentices. He said to Timothy, as Timothy traveled through the known Roman Empire and met with new church leaders, he said, command those who you meet who are rich, rich in this world's goods, to not be haughty or not be proud or not be stuck up or full of themselves. Command them to not set their hope on riches, which are uncertain. There's the moth and the insect and the thief again. Paul's saying the same thing that Jesus said. Instead, rely upon God, who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. Tell these rich people to do good and to be rich in good deeds, to be generous givers, to share with others. In this way, they will save up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the future, and so lay hold of what is truly life. What is real life is what Paul is saying. It's the same sentiment that Jesus said. He's echoing Jesus again when he says, tell them that they should save up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation by doing good. That's seeking first the kingdom of God. That's choosing to put your treasures in heaven where there aren't moths or insects or thieves that will steal or destroy what you have. And why do you do that? Paul answers that question, doesn't he? You don't do it so that when you get to heaven, you have a bigger heavenly mansion. You've heard that kind of teaching before, probably. That's not the sentiment the Bible wants to come across to you. You don't just put your greediness in heaven, and all of a sudden God blesses it, even though he would never bless it on earth. Paul is saying that by choosing to invest your resources in eternity, your opportunities, your finances, your skills, your abilities, by doing that, you can live a life now that's a real life. A real life, which implies that a life that's built only on financial gain and success is not a real life. And that's a challenging idea. Because we have responsibilities, right? And we gotta take care of our kids and how are they gonna afford to go to college or trade school or whatever it is that's in their future. 
my goal today is not to hand you direct answers to those questions. It would be different for each of you, and if I were to say a number that you should be giving to the church, or I should, if I were to tell you exactly how to manage your money, that would be wrong. Just the fact that I said it to you would mean that whatever number I said was not a good number and was disqualified. The point is the principle here. The point is when you see your bank account tick up, 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 what's happening inside of you? Who are you when you have more money? Who do you become when you have less money? God would like for you, like the Apostle Paul, who said to the church in Corinth that he's learned the secret of contentment in every circumstance, to have a joyful unconcern with the things that tie you to this world and this life. So that as you become more content and you gain a sense of God's all-sufficiency, you can become a tool for the kingdom of God, a weapon wielded in God's hands against the works of God's enemy. You can fight in the right places against the right things. You can take all of that that motor that you have, that, that engine, that sacrifice, that sense of hard work, and you can apply it to God's kingdom. That's what Paul is talking about when he tells Timothy to exhort these new Christians, is if you become rich in money, great, good for you. Now let's work on your character. Let's see you become the kind of person who's rich in good deeds, who's rich in love, who's rich in generosity. I want to be clear with you here, the Bible does not say that being rich is evil, not at all. But it does seem to think, does seem to be the perspective of God, that too much wealth can become a liability to your spirituality. That gaining a certain amount of money and all the entanglements that come along with that can work as a barrier in your life to knowing God and to living in a Christ-like way that loves and takes care of other people. So what do we do? What do we actually do? This seems like a list of things not to do, mostly, right? Deuteronomy says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Jesus says, don't do that. Paul just said, don't do these things. So what do we do? If the point is to step forward in discipline, what are some principles or concepts that can help guide us? Well, I have three for you, and I'm going to give you your last caveat this morning. Here comes your disclaimer again. These are not the way into the kingdom of God. These are not the steps you take to become a Christian. These are not things you have to do or else you're not welcome at this church. These are guidelines and principles if you would like to take the applied grace of Jesus and begin living differently from the people around you who don't know God. The first step that I would recommend to you is to assess your real income. All through the Bible, God holds people accountable for what they actually have. Not what they could have, not what they're planning to have. He doesn't spend a lot of time interacting with returns and dividends and things like that. He asks people to give a cut of what they have to him based on the real quantity that they've produced. Now, this may seem like a no-brainer to you. If you have a decently healthy relationship with money, this is probably already going on in your life. But here's what I know. In the modern age of checks that deposit themselves automatically in our bank accounts where we have Cash App and Venmo and we order food with our phones without ever seeing where that money comes from and we have side hustles and we make commissions, many people don't actually know what they make on a monthly basis. They don't know what that number is. And some people, and this is not, I'm not beating you up if this is true for you. I'm inviting you into some freedom here. I think I'm trying to do that. I hope that's what I'm doing. Some people can't look at their bank account without their heart beating out of their chest. Just having to see a number at all speaks some kind of emotional thing into their life. What I know about most of us is most of us probably were not taught to manage money by our parents. And that's kind of a multi-generational thing that if we had another hour, I would tell you about, and you probably wouldn't care about it, so you can be thankful that I'm not going to do that. But there comes a point in Western history where that becomes very normal, and it wasn't prior to that point. Prior to that point, it was like a normal part of growing up that your parents actually taught you to do your taxes in a way you could comprehend and told you which documents you need to put in the lockbox instead of just every piece of mail you ever get. You're like, I don't know, is the IRS coming for me? Stuff it in there. Just stuff, I don't know where, I don't know what it is or what it means. It's numbers, and I don't do numbers. That's how most of us interact with it. But, but truly, here's what I know to be true, okay? A lot of us, when we encounter 
finances, whether we get a big chunk of money or we have to spend a big chunk of money, it causes anxiety. It causes a lot of anxiety, or it causes us fear, or it causes conflict in your home, maybe discussing rent with your roommate or figuring out whether your kids should get braces now or in 10 years with your spouse or whatever. These big financial decisions are not where we can just kind of look at our money and go, okay, I know what we have, I know what it costs to live, I know what we have left over. Somewhere all of that gets muddy and gray and scary, and then we start to panic, and we begin to make bad decisions because it's primarily emotional. For many of us, a first step into discipline would be to physically, on a piece of paper, with a pen or a pencil, write down the number that is the number, and then get used to that number. Just make peace with it. I'm going to give you three more or two more steps you can take. Maybe don't try to move past this too fast. If for you, money is an anxiety-inducing thing, just looking that money in the eye and trusting what we've said today, that you don't have anything, really. Even that money is something God's allowing you access to. He's going to let you choose how to spend it, but it's not like he gave it to you and you better get it right or else or you're out of his kingdom or your life's going to be ruined. Following God's principles begins with just looking this thing in the eye and finding a way to do that. And that might mean having to pray for a while before you open your banking app. That might mean asking somebody to pray for you for a few days before you finally go to the bank and get everything out on the table. What's my total sum of debt? What's all my income? What are the things coming up? Am I living within my means? Just getting a grip on the boundaries around sort of the the field of your life would be a really good and important first step for you to take. Once you've done that, once you know what your real means are, you have an opportunity. And this is an opportunity. Again, we're not talking salvation here, but you have a chance to follow Jesus into real financial generosity. Generosity is different from giving sometimes. Generosity, like simplicity, is an inside attitude. And applying simplicity to our finances means that we have a chance to follow Jesus places that we would never go. That's what the Christian life is, right? Is we go into all kinds of places we would have never gone on our own. We're not inviting Jesus along for our super successful life. We were going to live that way anyway. Jesus is saying to us, put some things down, walk away from some things, and follow me. I will lead you and take you places you would have never taken yourself. Here is where you're going to have to make up your own mind on exactly what this means. Your heart is going to be where you keep your treasure, so you have to ask yourself, where am I keeping my treasure? And no one can answer this for you. No one can answer this for you. There are people who have millions of dollars in the bank whose treasure is in eternity. It's not about how big that number is. It's about what your heart thinks it means. What value are you placing on it? How hard are you leaning on that money to provide you with a future and a hope and security? Are you trusting God to do those things and maybe he's blessed you with a lot of money and now it's yours to give away where you can be a a catalyst for kingdom work maybe all over the world, maybe in this community, maybe in this church? That would be good. Probably most of what's happening is you're trying to give enough, whatever you think enough is, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute, but give enough back to God that you don't have to feel too bad about it while you kind of keep that security blanket as close as you can. So, we should take a hard look at what we give. And if I can go practical here, here's what I know about many Christians. We tend to rely on what the Old Testament calls the tithe as our kind of giving number. Tithe is a modern English word that essentially, or excuse me, it's an ancient word. It's not a modern English word. It's an ancient word where we would say in modern English it's a tenth. Tenth and tithe are kind of the same number. Maybe you can see that. They have similar letters and they're pronounced similarly. So the tenth was something that God gave to his people not as a way to cover all of their giving forever, which is often how we use it. We kind of treat it like if we land on the wrong square of Monopoly. We go, well, at least I know what percentage I have to put in the free parking square. You guys play that way, right? Where you, you have to put the money there and then somebody gets it. I don't think those are the rules. Anyway, but you do that, right? You go, okay, I got this much of a raise, so if I get $6,000 more this year, God gets 600 of it, and the other 5400 is mine. 
Already I'm off base, just to be blunt with you. I'm way off of understanding what's going on both in my own life and in the Old Testament. If you were to look financially and economically and mathematically at what the average Israelite actually gave to God in the Old Testament, it's not 10%. It's between 25% on the low end and 35% on the high end, depending on which feasts you observed and which parades you were part of and which sacrifices you made. Now, here's what I'm not trying to do. I'm not trying to make you super anxious right now that you've been giving between 15 and 25% less than God needs you to give for your whole life at all. What I am trying to do is drop a very friendly little bomb into that idea of 10% being the rule and confront you with the idea that if you want to use a rule, it's probably higher than you thought it was. But then I want to set you free to understand that the New Testament doesn't have a rule for you. The Old Testament invites the Israelites to give 10% to cover the physical needs of the priest of Levi, one-twelfth of the population was not allowed to own property, was not allowed to work farmland, was not allowed to have any kind of gainful income of their own because they worked at the temple all the time. And so they didn't need any distractions out in the field to pull them away from the sacrifices and the worship of God. In some ways, that's what church staff do. So maybe that tenth is a good way to think about giving to the local church to support ministry staff if you think that church is managing its, fun- its finan- finances well. I can't talk, sorry. But if you want to get a little bit more in New Testament territory... All the New Testament has to say is look within yourself, ask the Spirit of God, and then give with a spirit of thankfulness, a spirit of generosity, a spirit of gladness. That's why step one is step one, because for many of us, even thinking about money moves us out of the territory of cheerfulness and gladness and generosity and into the territory of anxiety and fear and self-condemnation. So we start there. And then we begin to think, okay, I've got this thing under control now. It's not this big looming monster that I fear every month. Am I going to have enough money to go to Taco Bell one more time, or am I going to bounce? You know, I don't know. I move out of that territory and into the territory of saying, now I have some opportunities. Now I have some evaluating to do. Now I need to think through, what am I giving to, and how would I do that? Uh, C.S. Lewis has a helpful quote that I want to read to you that I think is convicting. He says, I don't believe that a person can settle exactly how much we ought to give. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard which is common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving too little away. C.S. Lewis doesn't say it this way, but if we're keeping up with the Joneses, we're falling behind with God. That would be a good way to think about that. If our charities do not all pinch or hamper us, then I should say that they are too small. Now, I don't think a hard number is the best way to think about this. Like I said earlier, if I were to throw out a number that you and your family should be giving, I think all I'm doing is setting you up for failure. At best, that becomes a mechanical thing you're doing to make me happy and get me off your back, and that's not the spirit of giving that God wants us to have. What I think is best is to look within ourselves and ask, what is the state of my heart? Could I potentially put myself in a position to be stretched and grow in faith by giving a little more than I have been and see what happens? Or am I giving in a way that's irresponsible and it's causing the people in my life to not have the resources that they need to live? Maybe I need to rein this in a little bit because, again, my giving is not the way I earn God's love. My giving is not the way that I keep my seat on the bus to heaven. It does it, that's not the way it works. I want to be in a place where I can see what I have as God's first and honor him by giving some of it away. And so I would encourage you, if you want to get practical, to think in terms of three categories when it comes to giving financially. First, it would be good and right, according to the New Testament, And I have no agenda here, okay, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, to give to your local church with gladness. Many of you are new today, this is your first Sunday at True North, this is not your local church yet. You should not give to us yet. You shouldn't do that. Now you can pray and if the Spirit of God says, I want you to do it, that guy's wrong, great, listen to the Spirit of God. But in general, 
you don't need to begin giving the very first Sunday. You need to become a part of the family, and then you can contribute to the work that that family is doing. So no pressure today. But think about, how do I give with gladness to my local church? Then second, I would encourage you to support charities that care for the poor and those who are in need. Local churches are not set up financially to meet all the needs of all the people that come in their doors. At best, they may have a benevolence account that can help a person with an emergency now and again. But local churches can't offer financial counseling and investment advice and ways to overhaul everything you're doing with your money in, in your life. You, don't, you shouldn't ask me to give you that advice. You don't want to know. <laughs> you don't want my advice in that area. I don't know finances that well. I follow the rules and guidelines of an expert in that area who helps me make sure that I'm responsible with my family. So when we think about caring for the poor, when we think about maybe making contributions to an organization that's researching a cure for a serious disease, I would think that that's a separate set of giving for my family than what I'm doing with the local church. The local church is me contributing to the local body I'm a part of. Then I can go, what else do I want to give to you? What else can I support that's aimed right at the heart of fixing some of these problems, maybe even systematically on a larger scale? And then finally, I think we want to be able to be personally generous as needs arise. So category A and category B are probably things I plan out in advance. They're things I've had an opportunity to pray through. They're things I've consulted with my spouse or whoever else might be involved in the financial decision-making in my household. Category C is where I'm driving down the road, I see somebody who's in need, I'm in prayer for a second about that, and I feel that the Spirit of God says, you need to go for this. In the same way that many of us have no margin of time in our lives, like we talked about last week, many of us also have no margin in our budget to be able to do things like that. We see any unspent dollar as ours and as a way to fuel entertainment or hobbies or things that we would like to be doing. I'll tell a story on my daughter here, and this is not me bragging as a pastor and my pastor's kid daughter at all, but a way that I'm convicted in my own life is every single time my daughter and I leave Costco on Monday night, we always have fruit in the car, and we drive down to Bar Road, coming back toward Muldoon so we can go home, and there's a couple of intersections where there are regularly people who are begging who don't have anything or say that they don't have anything and are asking for people like me and my family who have some financial margin to help them. It drives my daughter crazy to the point of tears if we are ever driving by and we're going too fast for her to pull an apple out and pass it through the window to one of those folks. And I'm not that way. I did not teach her this, all right? I'm, I'm probably like you where I'm going, all right, buddy, what decisions did you make that got you here, right? I'm just being honest with you. That's the way I've been trained. My brain has been taught to see what a person has as directly connected to their character, Instead of seeing myself as a conduit through which God can reach a person and help a person, how much does it cost me to give away one of my apples? Why would I even need to think about that? Because I've been so trained that what I have is mine and I better do with mine what I think is best or else something bad will happen to me or my family. That category C is things like that. It doesn't mean you have to carry around a $100 bill just waiting for somebody to give it to but do you have financial margin in your life to help a person when they're brave enough to raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm suffering right now. It's not going well. I don't know if I'm going to make rent this month, and I could use a hand. This is what I think it means to follow Jesus into generosity. Local church, charities that target at things that God has put on your heart, and I would start local, not international. I would give locally to local people you can meet who are doing things in your community, and then have some financial margin if you can to do like Jesus did, to be on your way somewhere, be interrupted, and be ready to help. Now, if you'll do these things, here's your last big step. Again, if you want to take this. Pray to God for protection from wealth. Wealth is dangerous. Money is like a chainsaw. It's very, very good if you know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing and you just turn it on and start throwing it up in the air and trying to catch it, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to destroy yourself and everything around you. 
There are rules and guidelines to resources. There are rules and guidelines to wealth, to money that God has put into place. If we don't even know what those are, how do we stand a chance of ever getting it right? So, this probably feels the most revolutionary to you. Okay, welcome to following Jesus. It's pretty different from the way the world lives. But I don't know if you know this. It's a uniquely Christian practice to discipline your spirit by praying that God would keep you safe from having more money than you know what to do with. Maybe you don't believe me. So here's a couple of scriptures that you can start memorizing with your life group this week. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Those who long to be rich stumble into temptation. They stumble into a trap and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and despair. That sounds like throwing a chainsaw up in the air to me and trying to catch it and not knowing what it's for. For the love of money is the root of all evils. Some people in reaching for money have strayed from the faith and have stabbed themselves with many pains. There is a way to live where your money regularly asserts pressure on your faith and draws you away from walking in step with God. The author of Hebrews wrote this in Hebrews 13. He said, Your conduct must be free from the love of money, and you must be content with what you have. For God has said to you, I will never leave you, and I will never abandon you. So there's your antidote, is trying to believe that. Having in your heart the understanding that all your hope is in Christ alone. And the money that comes is God's, and he'll tell you what to do with it. Even James, Jesus' brother, wrote this in the fourth chapter of his letter to the church about why Christians fight with each other. He said, where did the conflicts, where did the quarrels among you come from? Is it not from this, from your passions that battle inside of you? You desire and you do not have. He's not saying how much you have. He's just saying you don't have what you desire. You want more. That's a lust for money. That's a lust for things. And so you murder You envy and you cannot obtain, and so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask, or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, so you can spend it on your passions. And you've seen people like that, right? Who claim Christ, but really they're building their own kingdom. Unfortunately, some of the most prolific charlatans in Christianity are people who call themselves pastors, who stand on stages like this and try to convince well-meaning people who don't know better to give way beyond their means to the point that puts their safety in, in jeopardy, so that they can, what, buy that guy a nicer jet, more expensive suits, more expensive stays at the nicest room in whatever hotel as he travels the world and does his crusade. I won't name names because I don't think you need me to. But I'll tell you this, there is a way to use and abuse the kingdom of God to get what you want. James says it's within arm's reach of all of us. You don't have to be world famous before this temptation comes knocking at your door. The chance to take God's blessings and use them for your own sake is very real for all of us. So what do we do? We pray against that. We ask that God, who is bigger than us, stronger than us, knows us better than we know ourselves, would protect us. Remember the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. God, lead me not into temptation. Temptation to do what? To believe that I've got it all under control. Father, do not allow me into temptation to believe that my nest egg, my financial future, my good decision making insulates me from the real world and real consequences. Teach me, God, to rely on you and to be ready When I have much, let me have much and love Jesus. When I have little, let me have little and love Jesus. That's what Paul said he learned was the secret to contentment. So what do we do? We follow Jesus and we seek his help by praying for him to guard us against ever seeing too many zeros on our paychecks. Simplicity, my friends, is joyful unconcern with possessions, prestige, and personal advancement. Today we've mostly talked about possessions. 
We believe that by gaining that joyful unconcern, we'll cultivate contentment within ourselves. That contentment will be an inner sense of God's all-sufficiency that will grow to believe that God really does have everything we need and he's taking care of us so that we can then approach our finances, look them in the eye, decide how to give, and ask that God protect us from ever having too much, that we would be tempted to compromise our faith and follow money instead. My prayer for you is that you'll chew on these things, that you'll think about them, and maybe spend a little bit of time evaluating the way that you and your family manage money in light of these principles. My prayer is that Jesus would have mercy on each of us because none of us have gotten this right. That's okay. And that he would teach us to live with open hands. Let me pray that for you and then we're gonna sing and respond to God's word today. Father, thank you for your word, for your teaching on what to do with what we have. I know that this is sensitive. I know that for many of us, it's really complicated. Uh, It's not as simple as I'll just go home and add a zero to the amount that I give to the church every month and everything will just get better. Father, many of us have deep-rooted issues with money. And those issues are personal because we learned them from people that we love. We may have lived through some horrible things as children, growing up and not having enough, growing up and seeing our families give everything away that matters in the name of making another dollar. I pray first and foremost, God, that you would give us the freedom to be honest about our relationship with money. The most important thing in all of this to me, and I believe to you, is that money not master us. That it not become our God, that we not bow down to it, love it, and despise you. Father, for those of us who need to reevaluate what we're giving to the church or to charity or to individuals, lead us to do that. Please be clear, God, so that we can feel confident in the way that we're making those decisions. But more than anything, change our character. Change our hearts. Allow money to be an opportunity that we have to bless you and to bless your kingdom. Set us free from the chains of fear and anxiety and ambition that complicate our relationship with what we have. We trust you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.